All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be up here with you. Uh, we're going to spend some time now in God's Word. Uh, and before we get there, um, I just wanted to make one little follow-up announcement to that newcomer lunch. Uh, Dave's going to invite some of his high school friends because they've got a reunion going on that weekend. Uh, and if you know Dave, that means there's going to be a lot of people there. Uh, so um, it's going to be a big event. We're going to have a lot of fun out there. We might actually move if the weather's like it is today. It's beautiful. You know, start the real starter fall is when the guys start wearing long sleeves, right? No. Uh, but um, we might even move outside, have a lot more fun out there. So we'd love to have you there if you haven't yet been to a newcomer lunch. Uh, so yeah, if we haven't met before, my name is Lucas Turner, uh, and I'm the welcome team director. I get to be a part of the welcome team here. I lead a great team of volunteers that uh, hopefully are some of the first and some of the last faces you see each Sunday morning to kind of welcome you here to the body of Christ. And so hopefully today, like every other Sunday, they were there, and they'll be there when we leave uh, to let you know that this is a good place where you are known and cared for and loved as we worship our Savior together. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. And while you're turning there, uh, I'm going to reference these a little bit later on, but a couple of resources. Dave always likes to plug books. This is another good one as well. This is one that's called Delighting in the Trinity. We're going to talk about the, the need to know our triune God really well uh, at, at a point in the sermon. This is a great resource, uh, so come take a look at that if you want to. I don't have the copy of the other one, but um, written by a guy, you might have heard of him, called C.S. Lewis, uh, who wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. Uh, and that's a great, kind of a spiritual autobiography. How did he become a Christian? And so, uh, yeah, if, if you want to look up, those, those are some great resources. I'm going to pull from those a little bit as we talk today. So like I said, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, and if you're using that black Bible uh, from the bench in front of you, that should be on page 956. Now, if you've been here maybe for several weeks or this is your first time here, uh, the last several weeks we've been going through this idea of the messed up church we're pulling specifically from 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 5 through 10. And what are we doing when we, when we go through the messed up church? We're seeing that there's a great lesson for churches even today that there are things that could creep into a church that could be maybe weird or kind of cultural things that we're used to that could actually be dangerous to the church, you know? So that's, that's why we need to be a church that pays close attention to each other, to, to look at, at our other brothers and, uh, brothers and sisters, to make sure we believe rightly, that we believe the faith that has been given to us by the saints, and, and that we are focused well on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and on the Word of God that gives us that revelation. This is important stuff, and, but it's a hard part of the letter itself because Paul had spent a long time with this church planting it and growing it and maturing it before he continued on in his missionary journeys. And so this was, this was hard for him, hard to tackle these, these hard issues with people that he knew and loved very, really well. And Paul's talked some specifics, some, some practical things, uh, and he's also been talking about, you know, maybe examples or, or you know, uh, again, very unique cultural aspects. Most scholars think that 1 Corinthians is actually the second of four letters that we have between Paul and the Corinthian church. Well, I say we have. Um, there is an unknown first letter or an undiscovered first letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, and then an, an undiscovered third letter, and then what we have is 2 Corinthians. But God preserved these two letters to be in the Bible for a specific reason. Why is that? You know, uh, when, we th when we look at the passage, you might say, uh, you might look at the title of it and say, food offered to idols, and think, finally, I get a week off. These last several weeks have been kind of a little too personal, right? We've been talking about things like marriage or singleness or sexual immorality or sin within the church. We know that those are real. We know that we have to deal with those, but 
food offered to idols, I'm confident that a very small number of you here have sacrificed to idols within your lifetimes. Uh, hopefully that's, that's not a big deal, but we can talk about that. But we're talking about a very unique cultural issue. And so it's easy to think that we've moved beyond that. that that's not really applicable to us. That, that is a, a historical artifact that, that's trapped in the past. And I wish I could say that that was true, but it's not. It's applicable to us today. You know, we study and learn from the church's mistakes here. When we call them the messed up church, our goal is not to treat the Corinthian church as like some accident out on the highway that you look at while you're driving by and then you keep on going and forget about. No, we want to study and learn so that we don't fall into these same pitfalls. You know, culture may change and evolve, but the same sinful tendencies and mistakes that the church has to deal with are pretty constant throughout history. And we're going to see that Paul speaks to some of those things today. We're going to tackle a cultural issue that presents a more universal truth. We're going to talk about food offered to idols that is really deeply about causing others to stumble in their walk with Christ. And I have to be honest with you, this has been a hard week of preparation for this text. This is a difficult text because it's, it deals with something that I think people in conservative evangelical churches like ours struggle with, whether we admit it or not. We're going to talk about this idea of knowledge quite a bit, of, of all the times that Paul uses the word, uh, the Greek word gnosis, uh, the word you know, knowledge or to know. Uh, over half of them are used, of all the times he uses them in the letter of 1 Corinthians, over half of them are within our 13 verses. So we know that knowledge is an important attribute uh, that can get overplayed in, in evangelical churches. It could be all about what you know, how much doctrinal, you know, how much credibility you have, how many books you read, how many commentaries you, you've consumed. You know, this is relevant for us. Another idea that we're going to wrestle with is the idea of our rights as they fit in with what it means to follow Christ. How does my freedom that Christ has given me from sin also fit in my call to serve him? Can I go do whatever I want, or am I still somehow not free because I have to follow Jesus? But Paul's going to help us work through this. He's going to say that your knowledge, it has limits. It can only take you so far. Your, your rights and, and you know, your, your supposed, supposed freedoms... Yeah, they're, they're rights and they're freedom, but you have to use them wisely. And so today I'm going to call our sermon, this, this idea, this, this heavier love, a heavier love from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And what do I mean by that? Well, I was trying to think through of it. Um, has anyone seen commercials? I feel like I've seen them a lot more in the past year or so. These things called gravity blankets. Has anyone heard of a gravity blanket? Or, okay, all right. Uh, I haven't seen anyone that actually has one, but tell me, if you have one, let me know. Like, It seems like the idea is... Uh, you know, they, a breakthrough science, uh, scientific approach said that you sleep better when you have this very heavy fabric, this very heavy material that kind of keeps your like secondary movements that you have when you sleep, kind of keeps those from happening, helps you get into a deeper sleep quicker. I don't know if it works or not, so someone let me know. But the bigger idea, you know, it's a, it's a small, it's a silly image a little bit, but it's meant to convey this idea of what we should do in our life following Christ. The love that Christ has given us should be like that blanket, but in a much greater way. It should outweigh everything else we do, everything else we think of whenever we're walking along with Jesus. You know, it's, it's not logic, it's not love, it's not anything else that should be our starting point, but it's the love that Christ has shown us first. We believe that we can show others love because Jesus first showed us love. And whenever we think about how to handle a situation or how to respond to sinfulness or brokenness in the world, you know, be it our own sinfulness or, or the sin of others, we need to know that it's love that is our heaviest consideration. It should outweigh everything else whenever we're thinking about how to live our lives, how to, how to raise our kids, how to, how to share the gospel with someone that maybe doesn't know Jesus yet. 
And a little side note, if you're here today and you're in that camp, you're, you're not really sure where you fall on the whole Jesus thing, or you, know, you might not call yourself a Christian, first off, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to have you here today with us. Uh, but I do want to admit, you know, there might be times where you're thinking to yourself, man, these Christians, they're a little bit pushy about their faith. They want to make everyone else believe this. You know, they're trying to take over the world or something. And, and I just want to say, uh, yeah, I mean, there are lots of times where we work through and realize like, oh, hey, we maybe made some mistakes when sharing our faith or, you know, there are things we wish we could have done better. But I can promise you that the vast majority of times that a Christian shares their faith with someone, it's usually coming from a place of love and care and concern for another one. It's not, it's not meant to, you know, tear someone down or say, look how good I have it. It's meant to show the love that Jesus has first showed them. You know, um, I, I know personally, deeply, that Jesus loves me. I, I know that to be true. And, but Jesus has said, good, go tell others about it. Go, go tell everyone here in this church. Go tell anyone that will listen. Go to the ends of the earth if need be to say that Jesus has loved you. He's loved you from the beginning. He loved you at the cross. He loves you today. So we're going to spend a lot of time working about this idea of love. That's why the passages that we have today and in other parts of Paul's letters and throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, help us to understand that we can't be selfish with our relationship with Christ. We can't be selfish with the love that he has given to us. But I I could go on and on about this. Uh, We'll have plenty of time to dive into it. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive into God's word together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for the the chance to study your word together. Um, We thank you that um, you have just shown shown us so much kindness in giving us a a safe place to gather uh, with shelter uh, from the elements and, and a place to be known and be able to sing your praises loudly. Um, we thank you for beautiful weather. We thank you for the, the change of the seasons. We thank you for just small ways that you have revealed that you are constantly in control of things like the weather, things like how we get to church, and, and every little detail in between. But let us not lose the big picture. God, you are in charge of all things, in, including how we came to call you our Father. God, let us understand these truths today. I ask that you remove me from this process and let your Holy Spirit speak powerfully to your people. Stir our hearts to, more, to be more equipped, be more prepared, to have, have a greater desire to show the love that you first showed us. God, we love you. We trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, uh, so again, Paul is, considered, or is concerned about a, a cultural situation with you know, kind of more timeless uh, truths. And so with the bigger picture of a heavier love, uh, the first section that we have here is we're going to call it the weight of love. So he starts in verse 1 in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Let's read that together. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So chapter 8 is actually the start of a section that's probably going to run through the rest of this sermon series. It's going to take us almost all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. Paul's going to dip in and out of this idea of food offered to idols and and pagan worship and and idolatry at itself to to really weave through some bigger um, moral examples or truths that we need to, to take away from them. But this is due in fact, or in part to the fact that the Corinthians brought this up themselves for discussion. Look at what he says. He says, now concerning, those are the first two words here, which is a pretty clear indicator that the church wanted some input on this. They wanted to know what Paul thought of this. It's probably safe to say that there was some level of disagreement or maybe even division over the church on this, and they wanted to seek wise outside counsel on this issue. So the issue itself, what what is the issue? The issue is that we have 
food that has been offered to idols. And so in lots of the pagan uh, ceremonies that were going on that were really common in Corinth at this time, it was very common to offer an animal as a sacrifice to that deity. Um, And this isn't a completely foreign concept. If you read the Old Testament, you know that we had a system of sacrifice that Israel observed, and there were even instructions at time if the ceremony did not call for the entire animal to be consumed, there were regulations for how the remains were to be disposed of. You know, there was a set regulation here. And so these, you know, these pagan temples, these these non-Christian worship ceremonies, they ran into the same consideration and probably in the name of practicality and maybe, you know, with a little bit of money on mind, a little bit of profit in mind, uh, they began to sell them in local markets, which leads us to a really practical question. The the Christians had, had to ask themselves, how do we view this? I mean, is this stuff off limits? Is, is this something that's okay? We, we, need, to, we need to think through this. Uh, and actually, that's another really good little side note for us today as, as modern Christians. You know, we, we need to understand that that level of attention to detail, that, that you know, focusing in on small things, that's actually appropriate. We, we need to understand that if following Jesus means that it's going to affect all aspects of our lives, then we need to think scripturally about everything we do. How, how do we watch television? You know, how, how do we pay our taxes? How, you know, how, what kind of food is best to feed myself or, or to feed my children? All of these fall under the need for a biblically informed wisdom, and therefore it's good to seek counsel. You know, we say that the Bible that we have here is, is the supreme source of truth, the supreme counsel that we have. But God has also given us older and wiser and more mature brothers and sisters in Christ. And then even more specifically, he's given us leaders and pastors who have been called by him to, to care for him, who maybe have specific training or experience in an issue that we're facing. So if you can't see what I'm fleshing out, you know, he's given us a local church to say this is where we're able to live our lives out. We're able to wrestle with all these things together. And the opposite side of that is to say that wisdom and that input very, I would say almost 100% of the time, should not be coming from you know, the wisdom of Facebook or, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the wise areas of YouTube or podcasts or, you know, our, our political leaders who tell us how they're, they're able to save all things or even our favorite celebrity pastors or writers. You know, I, I love John Piper. I, I, I love Tim Keller. They've done great things in helping me understand the faith. But guess what? They're not my pastor. They, they have not been called to care for me that, the way that the pastors and leaders of this church have. You know, so that's that's something that I think is really important for us to remember. And if you can't tell, it's a little bit of a plug for also what we do in our small groups. You know, throughout the week, we have small groups that are together where it's a place to to be known, to be cared for, to, to share your your sins and share your successes, and say how is God the hero of the story? We, we study scripture together. We usually eat really good food together. So I, I think it's a great way if you're looking for a place to know that in a local church context. Our small groups are where we're kind of at our best at that week in and week out. But how does Paul actually answer the, the question at hand? You know, he, he doesn't really get straight to the issue, right? Uh, they probably just wanted a yes or no answer. Hey, is this right or is this wrong? And he says, well, it actually goes just a little bit deeper than that. You know, he starts out with a probable quote. He's saying, all of us have knowledge. You know, we, we all know what we need to know. We know that something's going on and it needs to be addressed. But the more important issue here is the relationship between the Corinthians' knowledge and faith and love. You know, do you put so much trust on having the right answer, on knowing the right doctrinal issue that you don't love as I have called you to do? Is it all about finding out what else is wrong about someone else that you actually don't spend time building them up as I've called you to do? That's why I love the contrast here between knowledge 
and love. It says, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Think about that. You know, knowledge that's separated from the love of Christ, it's like a big inflatable bounce house or something, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's fun. The kids probably have a lot of fun on it. The dads probably have a lot of fun on it as well. Uh, but, I mean, you wouldn't want to live there full time, right? That probably wouldn't have done a lot of good on a cold morning like this, right? But think about it. The love that we have, the love that's grounded in Christ, it's foundational. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a solid slab. It's, it's a cornerstone that we build everything else up from. All of our, our what next and all of our how-to questions are answered when we're starting properly from that place of love. You know, you've got that, this phrase here. Uh, it's kind of unique in, in uh, verse 2. It says that knowledge technically isn't the base of knowledge, but it's actually it's loving God. It, it, and I think what Paul here is saying is that, you know, you can move on to those next things only when you start out when you, by loving God properly. This makes me think of another place that Paul wrote in, in Galatians 4.9 when he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? This is important. Knowing about God and being known by God are two completely different things. That's what he's saying here. Focus on knowing and loving God. Now look, it's good to know all, all of the, the, you know, the, the good trivia, the Bible trivia. It's good to know all about God, but, but know him. Be in relationship with him in an intimate way. So, so how do we know him? How are we called to know him? Well, at one point, at, at a certain level, we have to know God as the supreme, sovereign Lord of all things, who created everything we know and is infinite in his holiness and his justice and his righteousness and in his mercy. But guess what? We also get to know him as a father, you know, in Romans 8, he says we need to call him Abba, our Papa. We get to say that the supreme Lord of the universe is also the Father who adopted us into his family. And with that knowledge, we're able to turn around and start out showing a love for others. We love first because Jesus first loved us. So when I was thinking about a visual for this idea of love outweighing knowledge, I, I, kinda, I came across this picture. Uh, it's, it's of a dad reading a story with his daughter. That's a beautiful little image, right? You know, it's uh, it's probably just you know, something that kind of warms the heart a little bit. I've got a little girl about that age. Uh, and and it's, it's acknowledging that, hey, that dad probably has a lot of responsibilities other than what's going on here. He's probably got to care for his, his, his spouse, his, uh, for the other kids, uh, chores around the house. There are all sorts of things that could be pulling on his, his time or his attention. Or he might even have really important things to teach this little girl. I mean, eventually he's got to teach her how the world works. Uh, as much as I hate to say it, one day I'm going to teach you know, my daughter how, how boys work and you know, kind of navigate that one. But I mean, you got to teach them you know, how to drive, how to, how to you know, pay bills, how to be an emotionally prepared adult to go leave, leave and live an independent life on their own. But look, in that moment, at that age, it's more important for that little girl to know that her dad loves her. It's more important for kids, for children, for, for young Christians here to know the love of Christ before we start going on to the bigger and better things, quote unquote. You know, parents, I'm talking to, to myself here as well as to anyone else. You know, you can have confidence that you'll have time to teach those big things to, to you know, those bigger and important things to your kids as they grow older. But at the root, at the base, they need to know a parent's love for them. You know, they need to know that their parents treasure them and care for them and want them to grow up in a way that honors God, but also helps them go become good and, you know, functioning adults in society. 
And, and I, I fully admit, that, that's a hard image if, if maybe there wasn't a good parent or father relationship here. But we openly admit that, you know, the father image that we have, you know, whether good or bad, is meant to point us to another father. You know, I, I was fortunate to have a very a great father. I got to see him yesterday for a little while. But as good as he was, he's a shadow. He's a small, fleeting glimpse of the love of a, that a father, that our heavenly father has for us. And if you were in that hard position of maybe not having a good father situation, you know, I, 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 my wife is comfortable saying she didn't have a good one. But it, that was part of the story that kept calling her back to her eternal father, the one that loved her from the beginning. And that's part of the story of how God called her back to be his own. So love in every situation has to outweigh our desire to be the most factual or the most knowledgeable or the most correct in all circumstances. It has to be the grounding for all other ethics, what we do, what we decide, what we, what we actually act out in our faith. Because without love, we're going to see later in this letter, I think in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, we're just noisy, uh, a noisy gong, a, a clanging cymbal. We're just empty noisemakers. When we have the weight of love upon our hearts, we're reflecting that heavier love that Jesus gave us in the first place. So that's our first section. A heavier love shows that our love builds up our, our love builds others up and that our knowledge has certain limits. But with that being said, we have to acknowledge that our love is about a person who, who did specific things at a specific historical moment in history. You know, we have to understand, I hope I didn't discourage too much uh, from the value of knowledge and how it shapes our hearts and sets them on fire for other people. There is a value to, to knowledge, and it comes to this section, it comes in this section here, which is why I'm calling it the weight of knowledge. Our knowledge is not the most important thing, but also that doesn't make it unimportant. So let's read starting in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, so therefore, we're getting back to the question at hand, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. See those quotation marks? We'll get to those in a second. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So after establishing the bigger principle of love being more fundamentally important than knowledge, Paul says, okay, let's get back to the principles of the matter. What do we all have knowledge of? What, what do we know? Well, it sounds like he's repeating some basic phrases, these ideas in quotation marks, that were probably well taught or spoken often when he was among the Corinthian church. An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. These are so important, especially in a city, a metropolis, kind of like Corinth, where, where there were all sorts of Greek or Roman mythologies or pagan deities or worship ceremonies that were shaping the cultural mindset. And the reason these phrases are so important is that because in the, in the environment of many gods, there was some level of reality to them for the people that worshipped them. You know, that seems kind of weird. How can we call something that isn't real, real? Well, I think we do something very similar today. I mean, you know, we have these mega movie franchises, you know, something like the Avengers or Harry Potter or something. And we, we you know, use the images there as a way to explain what, what love looks like or what sacrifice looks like or honor or good and evil or heroism looks like, right? So, I mean, that's something that we actually do as well. But in the midst of these pseudo-realities, in the midst of these kind of half-truths or, you know, mental uh, things that we give, you know, reality to, 
Paul gives us the rock-solid facts of the matter. There is one God. This is one of the strongest statements that Paul makes in all of his letters for what's called monotheism, one God-ism. And, but just in case you're worried that he's saying only the Father is God, look, he immediately follows it, up, follows it up with saying Jesus is the Lord of all things. A small little clue for us as Bible readers you know, is that whenever you read of Jesus being Lord, uh, there's, a, there's a document called the Septuagint. It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So they're actually using the same word that we have for Lord that whenever they translated the Old Testament was used for Yahweh. So the word for Yahweh, uh, it's often pronounced Adonai. Uh, and then we have the Greek word Kyrios for Lord. So we're seeing very clearly that Jesus is God as well. There, there is a single unified God that Christians worship. And that book, the reason I wanted to bring that up is that Trinitarian theology, it helps us flesh this idea out because we add one more person. We add the Holy Spirit to it, right? Uh, And we understand that all three of them are three persons, one God. There is one God. There is no other. There's there's not a God for your weather, not a God for your finances, not a God for your, your sickness. That's the knowledge that he's saying the Christians have come to know. And at a basic level, we need to admit that there is a certain factual matter that you have to consent to in order to consider yourself a Christian. It's, it's some basic ideas. We, know we acknowledge that God made the world. We acknowledge that man's, mankind's sinfulness tarnished the world, tarnished that creation. We acknowledge that you know, Jesus Christ himself, God himself in flesh, lived, died, and rose again for, for the forgiveness of sins. These are some of the very basic facts that a person must accept as true if they want to start to consider themselves as a Christian. But there's actually just a little bit more to, than just to knowing. You know, we have to go from our mind knowing the basics to actually our heart trusting that they apply to us. I heard one time that the longest journey in the world is the 18 inches from the mind down to the heart. We've got to turn that into functional faith, you know, something that actually stirs our heart to love him more. And so what is it that we trust? Not only that we know, when we think of creation, we trust that God made us and made creation as a way to display his own glory. You know, we trust that man's sin is not just, you know, some little problem that has to be dealt with. It's the fundamental breaking of relationship between mankind and God, and it has to be resolved before proper relationship can be uh, put back together. And then it says we have to trust that the work of Jesus done on our behalf is enough to make our relationship with God right and whole again. Our hearts have to be shaped properly by our minds, but the love that flows out of them is what's going to carry us throughout the rest of our lives. That's why the Westminster Confession is one of my my favorite documents to read. It's a historic confession that goes over great ideas of the faith. It's very theologically sound, very knowledge-heavy, but how does it start out? It starts out, uh, the Westminster Shorter Confession, I believe, is a question-and-answer format. It says, what is the chief end of man? It's not to know everything. It, it's, not to, it's not to have all the right answers. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when we talk about how this applies to our own lives, I think it's pretty simple. I think we need to dwell deeply on the basic truths of God himself. You know, when I was preparing this week in, in my study Bible, one of the cross-references for this section was Deuteronomy 4.39, where it says the following. It says, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Lay it to your heart that there is no God like ours in heaven and on earth. No one, no body, no thing, nothing comes close to our God. 
So how can we stir these truths up? How can we lay them deep in our heart so they continue to set our heart on fire for God? Well, Romans 1 goes so far as to say that nature itself, just simply stepping outside and looking at creation, is a way that you know, all of mankind is therefore able to know God in a way that you know, should give them some idea that there is a God out there, right? But think about that. If that works enough for or non-believers, how does that work for believers, people that actually know that God made everything, that, that Jesus has redeemed them? Think about how good that could be. So here's a little lot. Has anyone ever been to a place called Big Bend National Park? Anyone here? All right, we got a few. Good. Okay. I have been. Uh, my wife is not happy that I went with some buddies and not with her. So uh, give me about a year. But if you ask me in a year and I haven't taken my wife to Big Bend National Park, hold me to it. She really wants to go. But um, let's see. I want to make sure I'm in the right spot. Okay. So if you haven't been to Big Bend Park, it's actually it's pretty cool. It's been declared the, the darkest and the clearest night skies in all of Texas. There's, there's hardly any light pollution out there. It's, it's really cool to see. And uh, Joey, whenever I was preparing this week, said I, I'd basically almost get in trouble if I didn't say, you see these beautiful stars at Big Bend National Park, and you just think to yourself, the stars at night are big and bright. Yeah, there we go. We, get, we still got some clappers. All right. They keep their Texas cards. All of y'all else, we got to do some more training. Okay. No, uh, but think about it. Go lay under that. L- look at that. I mean, that's the Milky Way galaxy. And I, I mean, that's a beautiful camera as well. I think there's another image that kind of just shows the expanse of God's creation. Look under that, knowing that God made that, and think about the God that you worship. You know, think that by his mere speech, he brought this into being and lay those truths deep in your heart. And then just repeat some of the knowledge that we have of God back to him. Imagine looking up to that and saying, the skies above proclaim your handiwork. That's from Psalm 19.1. Imagine what a powerful moment that could be. And you're not limited to that. I mean, I'll admit, Big Ben is a long ways away out there. The nearest towns are like two hours away. It's, it's a long drive. Go out and we have beautiful sunrises and sunsets every morning. L- look at, enjoy a beautiful day. The weather is gorgeous outside. Those are small ways that God is reminding you, look what I can do. Look look what I have done from the beginning. I continue to uphold. Worship me because of it. That verse from Deuteronomy is at the start of of something that's called the Shema, where uh, Moses is starting to tell people about the importance of worshiping one God. And why is he doing that? It's because Israel is about to go into the promised land where they're going to be surrounded by nations that worship many gods, polytheistic societies, multiple God societies. And what is Paul doing here? He, he's talking to the church and saying, don't get distracted by these multiple God temples and rituals. And what am I saying today? Don't get distracted by these multiple gods or false gospels out there that are vying for your hearts. What are those things that we face today? Well, I think, you know, they, they, those kind of evolve over time. I think very consistently what the church faces today is an idea that it's actually not all about God, but it's all about you. You know, the world centers around you, your, your happiness and, and your fulfillment and your potential. But when you sit under a sky like that and see what God stitched together by his mere word, you know, you're going to understand that there's something much greater, much more eternal, much more important than you out there. And that whatever that is, whoever that is, that's the center of the story. And as Christians, we, we confess that's, that's the triune God we worship. That is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit three persons in one substance, who created as an outpouring of their love and as a way for their glory. And I say their, his, and we need to understand, I want to use language carefully, for each person united in one, uh, one being or one substance. We call it the Godhead or the, tr- or the Trinity itself. 
Dwell on these truths and you will experience the weight of knowledge, the heaviness of knowing God well. That's how our Christ-like love grows heavier than anything else. Which brings me to our last point. Our last section uh, is going to be just a touch longer for no other reason than it has a little bit more text to cover. But really, it focuses on some of the most important issues of the passage, both in the short term and in kind of the longer term implications. Uh, Our last section is called the weight of obligation. And this is where Paul moves on from some of his statements saying, here are the facts of the matter. This is what you need to know to this is what you need to go do or maybe not do with that truth. So let me read starting in verse seven. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So if if we understand that Paul is having a conversation back and forth with the Corinthians about this, you know, the way he answers questions could probably give us a little bit more context on what they're asking. And so based on his responses here and then a little bit further, I think in chapter 10, we're going to see that he's probably answering some sort of dynamic between Christians that are weak or younger in their faith, and then stronger Christians who have been following Jesus for a little bit longer of a time. And so we need to understand that probably stronger Christians said something to the idea of, hey, you know what? I've got all this theological stuff down. I know the answers. I know that this is a temptation, but it doesn't tempt me, so I'm free to do this, right? And again, Paul says, well, it depends, You know, if it's just you in isolation, then sure, do what you want, because you know that this isn't sin. You know that this is a temptation, but you're able to avoid it. You you know that there's only one God, not many gods among us. And so, yeah, you're free to eat whatever meat you like. You know, Joey even talked about this last week whenever he said that there was a possible food shortage in Corinth at the time. So it might even be easy to kind of justify, well, I know the right stuff. I, I, I can handle this. This isn't a temptation. You know, I should probably just take care and eat, eat this so, you know, I don't starve. I, I, don't, I don't go hungry, right? If I've got the right knowledge and it is a, a tempta- temptation, what's the big deal? But we need to ask, how often do we do something like go eat a big meal alone? Even today, it's almost always with another person, right? And, and that's where it gets tough. That's where it gets real, where, where we're not sure if our knowledge is always the same as the person we're with. Paul says it. He says, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Just, just because someone says they might know the right thing about pagan idols and, and you know, the fact that Jesus is, is the supreme Lord doesn't mean that there aren't some, some traps here. There aren't some emotional or heart traps here. We, we have to remember that Corinth was an, uh, was an economic and, and cultural hub where almost everyone in this church, before it was planted, probably practiced some form of idolatry. So there's a level of familiarity with all of the cults that are around them. So for someone who maybe had just only confessed that Jesus was Lord and maybe just only recently been baptized or just only recently become a member of the church, there's a high likelihood that they were still influenced by Christian or non-Christian worship practices. For all they knew, Christianity was just the best religion, but they could still go worship in another temple on Tuesday and another temple on Thursday and then come back to this one on Sunday, and what's the big deal with that? So then a a, a more mature or stronger believer takes that new believer into this environment that they were familiar with, the the one they might very easily be tempted by, and they say, oh, this is okay. I mean, this guy led me to the Lord, and now he's leading me to this table, and and he knows where the food comes from, so I guess there's not a big deal here, right? But before you know it, they're, they're right back to where they began, you know, thinking that Jesus is just one of many gods. 
The word you see here for conscience in our text, uh, it was really well explained for me by one of the commentators I came across. It's a rare word in the New Testament, and so it you know, it doesn't translate perfectly to English. It kind of goes more for this idea of, of moral consciousness, that inner sense of right and wrong. And that's what the stronger Christians are called to protect in their brothers. If someone is struggling whether or not this is right or wrong, don't force, them, don't force the issue. Say, hey, we don't have to go there. We, we can forsake that if it protects you, protects you from sinning against that moral consciousness. This is important, especially for Christians that have a heart for those who are new to the faith or maybe have a heart for those who are not yet uh, followers of Jesus. And when I say Christians that have that heart, that should be all of us, right? Like we should all have that heart for those people. But part of our job of making disciples is protecting those who might be weaker in the faith. It's saying, you know what, I'm going to steer wide of that myself. And I'm saying, I don't need to do that. I don't need to partake in that because it's a way to take care of you. And then just to take the pressure off, look what Paul says in verse 8. He says, food doesn't make you any better or any worse. Just because you know God well enough, you've got the right answer, this isn't a sin for you, okay, good. That doesn't somehow make you stronger or even better. And another implication for this is that it should not cause us to be impatient with our younger brothers or sisters, with those that we are raising in the faith. Our job is not to make them mature as fast as possible, say, get on my level so we can go live the strong Christian life together. No, it's to show the, to reflect the fruits of the Spirit, to show them patience and kindness and gentleness with one another, showing the heart of Christ for those whom he died for. And a side note uh, for us when we read a text like this is that it's so easy to come into this text, especially in conservative evangelical churches like this one, and say, I'm the stronger brother. I've got it figured out. Clearly, I need to be looking for weaker brothers and say, well, what do I have to give up to care for you guys? And I just want to say, you know, be careful of that. You know, just like we're not really sure what everyone else knows, we, we need to be always... You know, on guard for what we do or don't know or what we need to grow in uh, in our walk with Christ. The, the Bible, Jesus constantly teaches us and rebukes us and reveals new areas of our hearts that are resistant to his lordship. You know, you might be in a season of relative health and, and growth and maturity in your walk with Christ right now. Great. Praise God and, and use that. Take care of others. But maybe six months, a year, 10 years, 25 years from now, there might be a season something comes along and you realize you're hanging on for dear life and you need the care of that other person that you thought was weaker, they're able to turn around and pour into you. So this section started out, the first couple of verses started out with a bit of a warning. You know, he's saying, you know, hey, use wisdom here, uh, but I'm not going to flat out, you know, say, just don't do it. But then he goes into pretty stark language in our final few verses. He moves into more of a, a black and white approach to this. Look what he says in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. This is serious. He's he's getting very serious here. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. We have freedom as Christians, you know, and we have the right to live a life that, that honors God and lets us do what we want to an extent. Obviously, we cannot willingly go back into a lifestyle of sin and still say that we're following Christ. And he says here that we have to be incredibly careful how we use or 
make the most of our freedoms, our rights while following Jesus, that they, they cannot become a stumbling block to someone else's faith or maybe someone else's understanding of the Christian faith. When that happens, when the truth of the gospel or our witness is threatened, our witness to the world is threatened, our rights no longer become our rights. We need to let go of them and say that they are sinful if they're blocking someone else's faith, and we need to be willing to forsake them completely in order to protect another brother's faith in Christ. This is not a popular idea in the postmodern West. For the past several centuries, we've had philosophers and theologians that maybe work outside of Scripture or public thinkers that have worked to say that individual autonomy and personal freedom are the highest ideal that any government, any society, or even any family can uphold. And to challenge that is to be uncaring or to be closed-minded or to be unloving or even hateful. And I'll admit that this nation is a unique and good experiment in the idea of, of listing down and defining and defending basic rights for its citizens according to its founding documents. But we need to always remind ourselves that God gave us a Bible. He didn't give us a constitution. He, he worked in that process. He, I think there were great things that came out of that, but our ultimate source is what we have here in the revealed word of God. We need to understand that we have permanent citizenship, a permanent heavenly citizenship in a kingdom, not a nation. And so if a so-called legal right violates any kind of biblical command, it is no longer our right to exercise as followers of Jesus. We must be willing to let go of it completely if it compromises our following of Christ or the obedience of others to Christ as well. That's the theory. Now let's get into the application. This is where it gets really hard really fast. Where are some ways that we have seen individual freedom so highly valued that it hurts the church's mission or witness to the world? I would say probably a big one has been politics. It's, it's, our, it's almost our new spectator sport, and that's really hard to see because we somehow like to equate the future of the kingdom of heaven on the outcome of whoever does or does not hold an office every few years. We need to say, like, we exercise our duty, and then we say, okay, God will, God will be in control, and that's okay. Another one might be a specific, even a more specific situation. We need to ask ourselves, how have we handled something like COVID over the past year and a half? Have we used that as a way to show care for and love to other people? Or have we used it as a way to assert phrases like my freedom, my, my body, my choice, my, my rights to health? You know, you know, it's been so hard to see that as a barrier to do things like care for someone if, you know, there, there's a simple thing like you know, wearing a mask or, or keeping distance or, or something like that. I, I understand it's been a contentious time, but we need to understand that, you know, if, if we start to show impatience or unkindness to someone, even if we don't show it outwardly, but we hold it within our hearts, Jesus says, that's not good. You need to let go of that. You're causing yourself to sin. You're causing that other person to to doubt the love of Christ. So those rights, they go out the window. And it isn't me making this up. Look, Look how Paul ends it right here. He says, if I cause one person to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Think about that. I'll go to the extreme to protect another person's faith in Christ. As the son of a lifelong barbecue owner, barbecue store owner, that is an extreme statement. Here in Texas, what a way to show the love. Look, look at this. I mean, look at the beauty of this wonderful brisket. And he's saying, I'm willing to give that up if it means that someone else will know Jesus a little bit more. And if, if that's just hard, if that's too much, if you don't think you can handle that, then don't look to me. Don't, don't look to Paul. Look to our Savior. Look at Jesus and what he did on the cross for you and me. 
Philippians 2 says that Jesus had the greatest right of of anyone. He, He was God himself. And what did he do? It says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped and said, I'm not, I'm not going to let go of this, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our proper knowledge of God and the love he has shown us obligates us to honor him and even be willing to give up freedoms if it helps another person know Jesus. And once they become a follower, we still need to say, I'm going to hold those things with an open hand if it means you can mature and grow and see the love of Christ more fully in the way that I live my life. There is no way to make the idea of giving up your rights for another more palatable to us, to our minds today. Our hearts desire the exact opposite. We want to know, okay, Jesus, where's the box that I'm supposed to stay in? Okay, I'm going to do everything I can here. This is my domain. I'm going to, this is where I'm in control, right? But Jesus says no. I mean, one of the famous, most famous lines that I ever heard was, there's no square inch of the universe that our Lord Jesus does not reach out and say, mine. He owns all of it, right? And so we need to understand that biblical wisdom, like Paul has given us here, states that we are always needing to interpret and ask but how well we're running after Jesus and, and how well we're, we are helping others follow after him as well. We need the faithful witness of brothers and sisters pouring into us to say, you're doing great, keep it up. Or maybe, hey, I've heard a couple things from you lately and it, and it seems like it's, there's some heart issues. Can we, can we kind of flesh that out? We need to have hearts that are so in love with Christ that the same heavy love that we have for him outweighs all other considerations. It must outweigh our desire to be factually correct and and knowing all things over everyone else. You know, it must outweigh the desire to love other things as equal to God, like an idol. You know, or it it has to outweigh our desire to exercise our rights before caring for another person. And as we finish, you know, let let me read this quote from C.S. Lewis from that book, The Weight of Glory, which calls us to forsake all other things than Christ because they're so cheap and temporary compared to him. He says, it would seem that our our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak, our desires for him. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Don't be too pleased. Don't be too bogged down by this, this knowledge that burdens uh, or this idea that rights are supreme. God has given us freedom in Jesus. And guess what? With that freedom, our task is to steward it well and make the most of it for his kingdom, not our own. Use it to make disciples. Use it to build others up in maturity and use it to protect one another. When the church does that, when God's people come into that, it will be an amazing sight to see. A community centered around a beautiful Savior living sacrificially for one another, all to the glory of their wonderful God. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we thank you that you have shown us what true love looks like. And we pray that you shape our hearts today to, to turn around and share that love with our brothers and sisters, with, with those who um, are not yet Christians. God, we, we, want to see, we want to see others delight in you the way that, that you have called us to. Um, God, it's a heavy burden. It, it's a heavy weight um, to carry, but it's, it's a good at the same time. God, you told us in, in the book of Matthew that, that your, your yoke is, is easy, your burden is light. So we know that, 
as we figure this out, as we walk through this together with, with, with our brothers and sisters, arm in arm, that you have given us the, the ability to, to run after you, not, not to struggle, not to stumble. And God, let us always be conscious of ways that we can care for others to limit uh, any opportunity to, to question or stumble in faith. Let us be powerful tools of love for you because you first loved us. God, we, we love you. We trust you. 